This episode is dedicated to Travis Scott Bowden, who passed away on April 23rd, 2020. The following is brought to you by the Social Suplex Podcast Network. It's time to get in the ring with Let me clear my throat here. Yes, it is. It's time to get in the ring with DJ D. Cooks. Just DJ D. Cooks this time. And I have a very special guest with me. He is the host of the Stick to Wrestling podcast, the only wicked good podcast that can get you in and out in 60 minutes. It is the Arcadian Vanguard Zone, John McAdam. Danny, thank you for having me on, man. How you doing? I'm doing very well, you know. We're going to be talking about Philadelphia wrestling history here. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I'm like a total Boston guy, but I would periodically uh, take the trip down to Philadelphia either by uh, plane, train, or automobile, and I would treat myself to an NWA show. Yes. Um, what's your background with the NWA at the time? Like, were you watching via TBS, or what? what, what was it? Uh, let me see. I started becoming a fan of the NWA when it really was a, you know, a bunch of promotions underneath that banner. When I started getting wrestling magazines in 1976, it kind of exposed me to a brand new world that was totally different than the WWF. Uh, then I actually remember the date. It was October 3rd, 1981. I started getting uh, WTBS on my cable system. And we watched Georgia wrestling, like, you know, religiously every Saturday night from 6.05 to 8.05. And then JCP took over uh, the Saturday after the first WrestleMania. And so I had been watching JCP for well over a year before I finally got to see my first show uh, in Philadelphia at Veteran Stadium in 1986. Yeah, so July 86, July 1st, 1986 was... Your first first JCP show at Veteran Stadium, the notorious Veteran Stadium. What have you heard about the Veteran Stadium? I hadn't heard very much, to be honest with you. I mean, when you say infamous Veteran Stadium, we're talking about like breaking Santa Claus's leg and stuff like that. Yeah, we're talking about breaking Santa Claus's leg. We're talking we're talking about all the sports history in, encompassing Veteran Stadium. Um, to the 700 level, of course. 
I went to Veterans Stadium twice. I went for the wrestling, and I went for a Phillies game in 1987. Um, I've been to probably like 25, 30 different baseball stadiums, you know, including like old Baltimore, new Baltimore. And Philadelphia, it didn't stand out to me as like either a, you know, a great or a bad stadium. It was just kind of one of those 70 stadiums where, you know, you've got the football team and the baseball team playing in the same thing. And as a result, you've got weird sight lines and, you know, a lot of foul ground, stuff like that. Yeah, I remember being in the stadium once when I was younger, like in like 2001, 2002 for a Phillies game. And the the new ballparks are a lot better. Oh, yeah. (laughs) They always are. I mean, you, you go to Fenway Park, and I understand that Fenway Park is, is never going away, and in some ways that's good, but I'm not a, a particularly big person. I'm exactly six feet tall. I'm 180 pounds, and I am cramped in the seats at Fenway. So, I mean, I can imagine what it must feel like for a bigger person. So, yeah, new stadiums are good sometimes. Yeah, so the vet the, the – had this infamous reputation, um, but you went down. It was on Broad Street and Patterson Avenue. Did you tailgate before? Did you do any rituals? Did you? No, as a matter of fact, I mean, it's been a long time, but I remember us going. We wanted to get something to eat before the game because it's, it's never economically smart to eat at the ballpark, and the food's usually not that great. But no, something it's happened. Not. Yeah, and something happened, and we had to, like, eat at the ballpark. So we basically went from the parking lot straight to the stadium for the, for the game. For the uh, wrestling matches. And you guys were treated to a concert of Joe Eli and Delbert McClinton. So the deal was J- JTP, who runs, was also a concert promoter at the time, too. Uh, no, I think Dusty, quite frankly, um, I mean, this is a human fault. He thinks everyone likes the same stuff that he does. So he figures if he brings these two acts that he likes uh, to the concert, now you're going to have people who like wrestling and people who like this kind of music and people who like both. And it's just going to be a grand old time. And it didn't exactly work out that way. No, there was only 10,900 fans there. And... And it and the vet held um, sixty one thousand. For yeah. wrestling, for wrestling, you could hold a lot more. Daniel, because, let me ask you a quick question. Did you go to the show? No, I didn't. I'm only twenty three years old. I wasn't even born yet. Okay, so you definitely. I I didn't realize. I apologize. Yeah. Um. But but yeah, the 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 theory is. That if you have a, a wrestling show in a baseball stadium, there are people who are not going to buy tickets in advance. And if you don't buy tickets in advance, you might forget to go. You might just decide you're not in the mood to go uh, because you know that there's going to be a walk-up. You don't have to make that decision ahead of time. And I think in the long run, that that tends to cost a wrestling promotion uh, fans at the gate. Because the NWA was hot in Philly at this time, and they were drawing. I think they were. I know they were drawing sellouts or near sellouts at the Civic Center. And the Civic Center, I, I don't know how many it holds. I don't think it holds ten thousand, but I think they would. Uh, I have the exact number here because we'll be talking about the Civic Center. Um, for basketball, ninety six hundred. For concerts, twelve thousand. But 
but right. that if and or bots. Yeah, so there's there's no question to me if they held this at the Civic Center, it would have been a sellout. They would they would have drawn more fans in a smaller building. Yeah, yes. And looking at the uh, attendances for the uh, rest of the tour, except for Charlotte, which Charlotte was a grandiose time at 23,000, it really wasn't a great time except for Philly. No, I mean, in Philly, you know, I mean, 10,000 in an arena is great. 10,000 in a stadium just isn't. Quick note on Charlotte, um, I think that was a sellout. The 23,000 was in a minor league baseball stadium, if I recall correctly. Yeah, and they did they did do a, do a uh, sellout in Greensboro Coliseum. A okay. Sellout. Okay. They did do a um, Road Warriors was it? Road Warriors to be and Baby Doll to be Jim Cornette and the Midnight Express. Okay, and that was a really hot feud around that time. So I don't think it was part of this tour, but but point being that they did do a saw in the month of July in 1986 at the Greensboro Coliseum. Okay, I mean, I know a few of the matches from Greensboro were aired on television, and Charlotte as well, and the crowds were really impressive. I mean, I remember being in Philadelphia and just, you know, kind of noticing the crowd and being like, well, you know, I, I didn't expect 60,000, but I kind of expected like 25-ish thousand, and the place seemed kind of empty. Really, yeah. So, getting into the card, the Barbarian, with, this was pre-WWF Barbarian, of course, um, defeated Danny Brown. Was this early Barbarian in his career? Uh it was, I mean, he started, I know he was in, the first time I was exposed to him, when was he when he was in Southwest Championship Wrestling, wrestling as Tonga John, then he took on the Barbarian gimmick, uh, I want to say late 84, early 85, and I mean, he was, he was part of Paul Jones' army, no one really took him seriously as, you know, a contender for the NWA or even like the United States title. He was kind of a mid-card guy, but a, a quick anecdote about this match. Uh, Sam Houston comes in uh, with a title belt, you know, world's junior heavyweight cha- heavyweight champion, and the girl in front of me asks her boyfriend, she's like, oh, this title's going to change hands. And he says, well, no, he's the junior heavyweight champion, so it's not on the on the line. And this girl is so confused. She's like, wait, <laughs> this guy's a champion, and he's getting thrown around the ring, and the title's not going to change hands? So I remember that. That was funny. That is certainly funny that Sam Houston comes in, gets thrown around, and he's the junior heavyweight champion. And Barbarian's not a junior. Uh, to say the least, no. And Denny Brown got in very little offense in this match. I mean, it was it was a squash. Oh, I, I could imagine such a thing. Um, NWA, what are you going to say? I'm sorry, can you, can you repeat that? I was going to say NWA Mid-Atlantic Heavyweight Champion Black Bart defeated Todd Champion next. 
Okay, if you <laughs> two quick things, and uh, one just jumped into my head. Black, if black, if the first two matches on this show both have champions in them, that is a screaming alarm that you have too many title belts in your promotion. Uh, <laughs> number one. Uh, you know, they recorded Ric Flair versus Road Warrior Hawk, the main event, and this ju- jumped into my head for the first time. If they recorded that, they probably recorded the whole show, and maybe someday this show will come out on WWE Network. Let's all hope. Yeah, I, I yeah, I saw that that this match did get recorded because it's on the VHS tape, which you can get for seventy nine ninety nine on Amazon. I mean, the whole show, or just or just the Flair Road Hawk main the event. Flair Hawk main event. Okay. The the, the videotape for the Bash eighty six, the the official release. Okay, I do remember that. Yeah, I'm like I said, I'm just hoping that maybe some of these entire shows exist and, and will someday be released, including and especially this one. Yeah, this show looked interesting. Um, but what was your impressions on Black Bart? I don't, I, I don't have much familiarity with Black Bart. He seems like a lost soul in the '80s. Well, Black Bart. I liked him, and it makes me cringe to to think that about six weeks from the bash date, here's where he is in the NWA, right? In about six weeks, he's about to become world champion of world-class championship wrestling. And I want to tell you, I will bet close to 80-90% of the people who watch world-class wrestling also watched the NWA on cable. And they knew who Black Bart was. He was a bottom to the of a bottom to mid card guy, and here he is, world champion. It's like you know the guy who he wins the home run title in Double A baseball, but he can't get off the bench in the majors. And you you know so you know what this guy is. He's you know just not a major league player. Um, I liked Bart. I thought he was a really good worker for such a big guy. Um, I thought his interviews were really weak, and just having a guy named Black Bart, I think that hurt him. I think he needed to be like Big Bart Johnson, or just have a, a last name, Black Bart, whatever. I think that held him back. I think, I, I think, and I've said this before. If they had kept Ron Bass, and I think they could have, I think Ron Bass would have been happier doing this than going to work in Florida where there was no money. I think they should have made Ron Bass and Black Bart a permanent tag team. You know, they called them the Long Riders. I think they should have kept that act together instead of turning Bart in '85. Instead of tearing Bass in '85, I think you know they would have been a good tag team to have around for a while. Sort of had a look to him with the beard and everything. Sort of had a look to him. Looking at him now. Uh, yeah, I mean, he kind of had that, you know, rather unkempt look about him. But yeah. he was a heel, so what can, what can you do? Yeah, what can you do with that? He, he was from Pampa, Texas, 285 pounds. Um, yeah. I can see why World Class saw something in that. I think they did. I think what they didn't realize, though, is that he had been typecast 
Now, he'd been on WTBS for well over a year, and we all knew that, look, he was an undercard guy, and this is what you're trying to push as you know your world's heavyweight champion. And guess what? You don't even have footage of him beating Chris Adams because no, you know, the match never happened. And I think the average fan saw through that. I certainly saw through it, and I didn't get the newsletters or anything like that at the time. Right. Um, Manny Fernandez defeats Shaska Watley in a bunkhouse match. First of many stipulation matches. Uh, yeah, they they went a little bit crazy uh, during the bashes and Starcade with the stipulation matches. Pez Watley had just turned heel, I want to say, about six weeks, seven weeks before this, when he went crazy and, you know, Jimmy Valiant called him the greatest black athlete of all time. And instead of Bo Jackson coming out and whooping up on Jimmy Valiant, uh, Pez Watley does. And it was funny, Pez Watley was... He got mad at, at Jimmy Valiant, and he snapped, and he happened to have a pair of scissors on him, and he cut Jimmy Valiant's hair. It was one of the weirdest angles I've ever seen. <laughs> Sounds weird. I mean, you know, when we saw the show, we got the show at midnight, the worldwide show where the angle took place, and I'm just like, yeah, I'm watching this. I'm like, okay, did I drink too much beer tonight? What's going on here? <laughs> He's facing Manny Fernandez, who is was this basically a squash or? Uh, I you know what? It was not a squash. Um, it was it was actually I remember it being a good match, very violent by WWF standards, which is all I had well basically all I had seen live by that point. Um, and the, that's the key. Both guys bled in the match. And it, it was, I remember it being good. I mean, granted, it was 34 years ago, but I, I enjoyed the match. But it was not a squash. And okay. I'm actually a little bit surprised in hindsight that Manny went over only because Watley had just turned. And usually, when you have a guy who just turned, you, who has just turned, you know, you put him over for a little while, but not this time. Right, right. So it, it was weird that Manny went over. In European at the time. Yeah. So here was the first controversial match of the evening. Wahoo McDaniel defeats Jimmy Garvin. The show was nearly shut down by J.J. Binns due to blood loss during the match. There was speculation that Binns was paid off by the WWF to threaten to shut down the show. And he reportedly attended the show with his kids who... Don't generally go to wrestling cards. However, he appeared on the 62086 Spectrum show, which he was a part of the action. And during the show, ordered the Junkyard Dog to face Don Morocco the following month in a dog collar match. Okay. Uh, was J.J. Binns, uh, was he paid off by the WWF? No. And I'll tell you how I know this, okay? I, I don't know it for a fact, but hang with me. All it all Bins would have had to do was shut down the show instead of threatened to shut down the show. Instead of talking about shutting down the show, he would have shut down the show if he was paid off. So that makes absolutely no sense. Here's what I think really happened. OK, well, here's what I know happened. The Garvin McDaniel uh, strap match was a bloodbath. Garvin bled 
And Wahoo not only bled, but as he cut himself, he got a piece of the razor stuck in his forehead. You never heard that? I never heard that. Yeah, okay. So Wahoo was an absolute mess. So we are four matches into this, and we've already had two absolute bloodbaths on a show that was pushed as family entertainment, okay? Binns apparently bought into this and brought his whole family here, and now he's seeing a triage scene from the Vietnam War. So I I think what Binns did was legit, um, and I think – you know, I, I'm against state athletic commissions. I don't think there was any reason for them whatsoever. Um, I mean, I know there are reasons, but there weren't good reasons. And, and the bad brought about by state athletic commissions far outweighs the good. But, hey, he was a state athletic commissioner. And if in, if in his opinion, you know, the show was not family entertainment, then it was his job to stand up and say, hey, you know, this is not what we bargained for. This is not what you advertised. Stop doing what you're doing, or I am going to shut down this show. But yeah, I, I've always thought that you know the rumor that the WWF paid him off was ridiculous because, like I said, if if they wanted something effective, he would have actually shut down the show, which he had the authority to do. Right, but but while well, Daniel actually got the blades stuck, oh. That, yeah. that, doesn't, that, that doesn't sound like fun. That doesn't sound like uh, something I want to clean up after or pick out of someone's head. Now, I didn't know what was going on at the time, but there was a, a long delay in the show after this match. I didn't know at the time that J.J. Binns was losing his mind and, and, and threatening to shut down the show. But that, I, I can tell you, as someone who was there, I was someone who was saying, okay, why has this show stopped for like 10 minutes? Right. Okay. It was only like a 10, 15 minute delay. I would, I would estimate about a 10, 15 minute delay. Yeah. Okay. Is that what you have in front of you? No, I don't okay. have any delay in front of me, but the match after that was a taped fifth match. What a way to go after between Ron Garvin and NWA national heavyweight champion, Tully Blanchard in the non taped Title taped fist match. Taped fist match. I remember uh, that. I remember that being a really good match. Uh, they did the angle where Tully Blanchard uh, injured, broke Ronnie Garvin's hand. Uh, JJ Dillon would not let him wear tape on his on his injured hand. He had to either wear a cast or tough it out. And they did a good job with this. Like they showed Garvin, you know, taking off the tape, and you see this black and blue hand underneath. And uh, I remember this being a good match. And the oh, and the idea was, well, Garvin can tape his hands as long as Tully can tape his hands. Uh, no blood in this or any other match moving forward. And I do remember this being a good match. Tully was at his absolute apex here. Wow. Jimmy Valiant defeated Baron Von Raschke in a pole match? Yeah. Yeah. What it the was... hell is a pole match? <laughs> uh Pole matches were always dumb. The idea was, I remember the way they used to build these things up. You know, a wrestler would be in a feud, and he'd be like, you know, the way we used to settle things in our neighborhood, two guys couldn't get along, as we'd put a coal miner's glove on top of a pole. And I'm like, wow, it's a hell of a neighborhood. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And so Von Raschke, you know, had this German glove 
coal miner's glove thing, and it was up on a pole, and this match predictably was not very good. Uh, Von Rasch... Oh, was up on a pole, you broke up there for a second. Oh, okay. A coal miner's glove. Okay, what was I doing? Explaining what, the glo- uh, what it was or what happened? Where, where did what, I it was. what it was. A pole match. Oh, okay. All right, I'll, I'll start from there. I'll explain what a pole match is. I'll, do, I'll, I'll count to five. Five, four, three, two, one. All right, a pole a pole match. I think it was actually billed as a coal miner's glove pole match, where you had like a loaded glove on top of the pole. The, the first person to get up the pole and get it now can use this weapon against his opponent. It was kind of a dumb concept, but it pushed the Jimmy Valiant versus Paul Jones feud, which was already really old. It was like already two and a half, three years old, and they're still going with it. But, and, and the match wasn't any good. I mean, Jimmy Valiant, really nice guy, but a no- notoriously poor worker. And Von Raschke was on the other side of the mountain at this point. Yuck. The match didn't sound good. But the rest of this card looks awesome. Yeah, Jimmy I mean, Hall, Ricky and Robert, Ricky Morton and Robert Gibson defeat Jim Cornette, Bobby Eaton, and Dennis Condry. Okay, it was the the three on two match, right? It was three on th- three on two, yeah. Okay, and I think the Rock and Roll Express had Baby Doll in their corner, if I recall correctly. Um, and you know the, these teams always put on a good match, and I remember them putting on a really good match on this night, Cornette. Maybe next to Bobby Heenan, he was the best in-ring manager I've ever seen. Because, you know, no, I'm, I'm not saying that Jim Cornette can dunk a basketball. He's a great athlete, anything like that. But the guy knew how to work. He knew his role in these kind of matches. And he always played it well. Yes. Yes. And I, I saw a match, the Fantastics versus the Midnight from a world-class episode in 86 that a podcaster reviewed, like, out of, out of the blue, like, on uh, this podcast, and that match was really good. Um, Tommy Rogers and Bobby Fulton, on, on a side note, are really good. Oh, yeah, I mean, they had a match... Um, I mean, I just rewatched the 1988, uh, was it, the first Clash of the Champions when they had the Midnights and the Fantastics. I watched on WWE Network, and it was phenomenal. Um, before the show, they you know, said, okay, you know, Sting and Flair are going 45 minutes. You guys can only go 10 minutes, sorry. And the five of them got together, and they said, okay, we're having – this is going to be the damnedest 10 minutes of all time, and it was. That that was a an absolute tornado of a match. Um, but then they had a better one on Worldwide Wrestling in 88. It took the whole episode, just like a 40-minute match, and had more people seen it, it really would have been in, the, in contention for match of the year. Yeah. Speaking of great wrestling... Um, Nikita Koloff with Ivan Koloff pinned Magnum TA after Ivan interfered. Nikita won Magnum Zero in the best of seven U.S. Championship Series. 
Magum and Nikita were both so over at this point. Um, Magnum, this was the first match in the series, and everyone kind of in the stadium felt deflated when he lost the first match. It was like, oh, you know, um, I think the the idea of a best of seven series was a really good one. And people still talk about this series to this day. Um, But just the idea that, okay, Magnum, his conduct against Nikita when he attacked him during that press conference and then he hit Bob Geigel, his conduct was so heinous that he gets the United States title stripped of him. Yet he is now going after the title again and again in a best of seven series. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But right. the the concept of the best of seven was phenomenal. The execution was phenomenal. I thought it was going to be like, okay, one to nothing, then Magnum ties it up, then two to, two to one, then Nikita ties it up. No, they had Magnum lose the first three matches, and then he makes the comeback so that it's three to three, which, by the way, I'm not saying I'm the smartest person in the world, but when it was down three nothing, I'm like, wow, Magnum's going to win the next three, and then Nikita's going to win match seven, and... The seventh match, I mean, it's out there. It was on Worldwide Wrestling, and the fans were just wild for it. And the place went totally silent when Nikita won the match. And as he was going back, you know, held the United States title up for the first time. I mean, the place went silent. It was nuts. Yeah, you don't feel that emotion anymore. No, I mean, you know, it's, it's technology. The Internet is out there. Everything once that happened, everything was going to get out. The mystique of wrestling was going to be lost. It's not anyone's fault. It's just the way it, it is. Yeah. And, and the way. Can I say uh, something uh, really quick? Yeah. Everyone listening to this, don't listen to anyone else. Starcade '86 would have been. I know this for a fact. Nikita Koloff versus Magnum TA in an I Quit Cage match where Magnum was going to win the United St- regain the United States title. If Magnum didn't get into the car accident. If Magnum, correct, had Magnum, Magnum not had that accident, and that was such a tragedy. Yeah. Magnum was such an effective worker. Um, you see that in the uh, Tully match, and you see that in the Tully feud. Like, he was such an effective promo and an effective worker. He was, and, you know, the fans loved him. I mean, he was one of those guys where the girls loved Magnum TA, obviously, but the guys loved him, too. Like, the guys, a lot of the guys didn't like the Rock and Roll Express, but Magnum was fine. <laughs> like, the, like, like you, you don't get anymore. The girls wanted to fuck wrestlers. <laughs> Oh, yeah. They, yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, the closest thing you get to it is in New Japan. Like, Kenny? Kenny? Go <laughs> talk? Go talk? No, I, I mean, I, I had never seen uh, anything like the Rock and Roll Express twice because, I mean, when I saw their debut in Mid-South Wrestling in 1984, I mean, they – all they had put out were the music videos – 
and then they they appear for the first time at the Irish McNeil Boys Club, and the fa- the girls, the fans, just go wild over them. It was like the Beatles had come out. It doesn't come across as great on WWE Network because they have to mute out Rock and Roll is King, and thus they take out a lot of the crowd noise. But if you see the original DVDs, I mean, the place goes nuts. Then move forward about a, over a year later when they debut in the NWA. I mean, you know, Rock and Roll's King would start playing, and the, it would be nuts. It was like Elvis Presley in the 50s. Yep. That's awesome. That's <laughs> Way to be. NWA World Champion Ric Flair defeated Road Warrior Hawk Paul Ellering via disqualification at 11.43 after Hawk accidentally knocked over referee Tommy Young to the floor when the champion moved out of the way. The bell rang as Young crawled back to the ring and as Hawk had Flair covered covered following a backbreaker with the fans thinking Young counting the, was counting the three as he crawled back in and that Hawk had won the title. Okay, a couple of things. <clears throat> There could not have been one person coming into that arena thinking the title was going to change hands on this night. I mean, they they couldn't have possibly because Hawk was a tag team guy, number one. Number two, you had to figure that the title was not changing hands the first night of this tour. Um, I mean, you didn't have to be a quote-unquote smart fan to know that. I I think one thing that Dusty – did I, I think I think it was smart in a way that he said, okay, Ric Flair is going to be defending against 13 different challengers on this tour. I thought that was smart in a way, but I also thought that, well, that doesn't really give that one special challenger feel like they had the year before with Nikita Koloff. Um, so, I mean, it had its ups and downs is what I'm saying. Right, right. And I've um, seen this before. I mean, even I—I sorry, sorry to repeat this, but I, I wasn't getting newsletters or anything like that. I wasn't, you know, in the least bit smartened up. But I knew that the title had to change hands on this tour, otherwise, Ric Flair. You know, if, if one of these thirteen guys doesn't win the title, that makes your baby face roster look really weak. Yeah, that's true. That—that that is true. One of. Th- Wow, 13 baby doesn't win the title then. Yeah, and I, I also have the, the opinion that, I mean, Ric Flair had been on as NWA World Champions uh, on TBS since he won the title five years earlier. And I'll, I'll, some people are going to disagree with this. I think they should have kept the belt on Dusty Rhodes at least for a little while, a little while, meaning more than three weeks. Um, I would have had him keep it at least until Starcade 86. Mm, interesting. Yeah, I mean, and I just think, you know, it was it was time. Uh, Ric Flair is my favorite wrestler of all time. Make no mistake. But after him being on TBS's champion for five years, I just thought it was time for something new. And I thought Dusty had the chops to represent the NWA as world's heavyweight champion. Yeah, he was getting a little bit older. He, you know, probably should have kept a better eye on his weight, but he was over as the top babyface in that promotion. 
I don't I don't know if he could have carried it in 87, but in 86, I think he could have. Fair point. Dusty Rhodes and World War Animal defeat Ole Anderson and Arn Anderson in a steel cage match. Yeah, um, I understand, like, okay, Dusty and the Andersons, they had a feud in 86. The Road Warriors didn't really have uh, any kind of a uh, program with the Andersons. Um, I mean, well, the, the yeah, I mean, the Andersons were part of the Horsemen, and they beat up the, the Road Warriors on TV, like, the week before, so there you go. But coming in, I'm like, why? Well, why are we, are we having this match? And let's be honest, we're having this match because we've got four guys who don't have anything else to do. Yeah. It just feels like it just feels like you were throwing a match together. Yeah, and I get it on some level. Like Dusty, he basically has to put put in thirteen different cards, and you know you, you gotta have to have some creative license. But maybe there is something to. I remember Vince McMahon in, in nineteen eighty eight, very beginning of eighty eight, he started putting out the same show every night. From moving forward, like every every arena was getting the same show, and it used to not be like that. And there's something to be said for mixing things up, but there's also something to be said for hey, this is the card we're having every night because all of the matches make sense. Yep, that that does make sense. Yeah, in a way. Um. I. Mean, I mean, but you're, we weren't used to it. For like, for you know, since the beginning of time, they had a different show every, you know, every single night. It didn't matter if you know, it didn't matter how far away they were. You were getting a different show. But it makes, like I said, on some level, it makes sense to do the same show every night. Although in '89, the NWA had the same show scheduled for Providence on a Sunday night that they had in Boston on a Saturday night, which makes no sense whatsoever. The arenas are like 40 minutes apart. Right. Well, the Providence show got canceled, but anyway. Right, I was surprised looking at the history of WWE um, Bash Tour and, and seeing that, that none of the... Uh, things overlapped. None of the cards really overlapped. I'm sorry, Dan, you were breaking up. Could you repeat that? None of the cards none of the cards in eighty six overlapped. Yeah, they they were all they were all different. Some of them were similar. I mean you had to have, you know, Dusty Rhodes and Baby Doll with their uh, with their feud with the Midnight Express. I mean you had to have I, I, actually, there was really nothing oh, – Nikita and Magnum, but you knew they were wrestling every night. Yeah. And uh, Demi Brown and Steve Regal and Sam Houston were in, like, a three-way feud. Uh, I wouldn't call it a feud. <laughs> um, oh, the junior heavyweight championship. You, you know what? I mean, this was we, – we talk about, like – I don't know, junior heavyweight championships, cruiserweights, I mean, they never got over, they might have gotten over in different areas, they never got over in the Northeast, and one reason is because you see Denny Brown getting thrown, you know, thrown around, but I think another reason, um, I mean, Jerry Seinfeld had a great line about pro wrestling, what it is, it's really, really big guys who pretend to fight. <laughs> <laughs> 
and you know junior heavyweights aren't really really big guys. Right, it may be over to like the smarts, but but it's not over to the uh, the uh, the general public. Yeah, I mean, you look at a guy like the Warlord, who was so big, um, but he couldn't move. But we bought the Warlord. We you know we bought him as oh my god this guy's gonna kill someone because he's so big and strong. But we didn't really buy Denny Brown or, or Steve Regal. Right. Now we move on to the NWA in Philadelphia, PA. On February 4th, 1989, 2,000 people attended this show. Uh, I, I don't think it was 2,000. I, I think it was closer to 1,000. We were Closer to 1,000? We were stunned at how few people were in the Civic Center. If I, if I could take you back, number one, I went, I attended the show with probably about 20, 30 of my friends from around the country. It was a great, great time. Uh, I remember flying down. Um, what else? And it was, it was when the NWA had just switched over from Crockett to um to turner uh what was the date it was january uh chidetown rumble was chidetown uh, rumble the first pay-per-view uh no actually starcade was the first pay-per-view under new under the, the new management but the nwa was transitioning at this time because they had just moved over from you know being owned by Crockett to being owned by Turner. They were doing a lot of house cleaning. Uh, a lot of guys who had been there for a long time were gone. Uh, Ivan Koloff, Paul Jones, Junkyard Dog had just left. There, there were more. Um, and they were bringing in a lot of new talent. But right now they were still kind of looking for new talent. So it was almost like you know a restaurant being open when, when renovations are being made. Right. Right, so we have Butch Reed, Hacksaw Butch Reed, defeating Steve Casey. Okay, both new guys, both you know wrestlers who had been in, been brought in under the new management, if I recall correctly. Uh, Butch Reed I, is someone I've always thought the world of. Right now, come you know, he came off that WWF run, which I didn't think was the greatest thing I'd ever seen. Uh, you know, wow, Butch Reed in the opener. Uh, Steve Casey was one of those guys. I mean, I just I, I could never get into him. Yeah. I also, I also remember this not being a good match. Yeah, it doesn't seem to be that one slam dunk of a match. Yeah, on this card. Uh, I remember one good match on the show, but I mean, I, I get it too. I mean, it's the opener. People are still coming into the building. People are still getting settled. So you move slow in the opener. That's how it works. Speaking of the dog, the junkyard dog, and Michael Hayes defeat Dennis Condry and Randy Rose. That's right. JYD wasn't gone yet. He would leave right before the Clash of the Champions in April. He quit because he didn't want to do a job to Muda. Okay, JYD and Michael Hayes beating the, the, the original Midnight Express does not make a lot of sense. 
even though I get Hayes and Dog, you know, they teamed on TV. They were both big individual performers. But Paulie and the original Midnight Express were involved in a, a major program with Cornette and his Midnight Express. And they had the big match coming up on pay per view. Uh, in February, so having them do the job really doesn't make a lot of sense here. I also remember this not being a particularly good match. Paul Lee was really good at ringside, if I recall correctly. Yep. Paul Lee, I think, is what is the most underrated manager of all time. I mean, people are now talking about him being an all-time great manager because of the things he has done over the past 10 years, more than 10 years, with Brock Lesnar. But I thought in 89, he, he might have been the best manager in the game. And I think I think Jim Cornette's a 10. I think at this point, Paul Lee was also a 10. That That is very understandable. With the cell phone and everything and the briefcase, you couldn't go wrong with Paul Heyman back in the day. Yeah, I think he he was very undervalued. I mean, oh, he's just trying to be Roddy Piper. No, he isn't. He was better. I think he was better behind the mic than Piper ever was. And that that is a big compliment because Piper was great. Yeah. NWA TV champion Rick Steiner defeats Russian Assassin 2. Oh, yeah. This sounds awful. Uh, I mean, Steiner was so hot at this point. He was red hot after he finally turned babyface against Kevin Sullivan and Mike Rotundo. The Russian assassins were never a good idea. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) it was just, you know, I know they brought them in to replace the powers of pain after the powers of pain walked out. Uh, If you don't know, it's Dave Sheldon, a.k.a. the Angel of Death. And Jack Victory. And I give Sheldon a lot of credit. Uh, He came in originally as just the Russian assassin. And he worked very hard to get that gimmick over to the point where he was learning to speak Russian. Okay. But so bravo to him. But the the gimmick's a clunker in 1988, 89. I'm sorry. And then you had Lex Luger defeat Ray Candy. This match was awful. I remember this match being even way worse than you would think on paper. Um, I mean, just Candy could not, would not do a thing. He had been pushed a little bit on TV as, oh, what were they calling them? Uh, the, the, the commandos, that's it. Uh, and it was him, and I forget who else, but it obviously it was a forgettable tag team, and this match was just terrible. It sounds terrible. I mean, Luger at the time was over, and he was getting – he was way better than he had been in like 87, 88. He had a really good year, and he was about to have a really good 1989. But, I mean, there there was just nothing you could do with Ray Candy, and I don't think Luger even tried. Yeah, I don't think Luger even tried. (laughs) No. Luger was like, I'm going to take the night off. I don't blame him, <laughs> but he did. Uh, Duel of the Butcher defeated Bob Bradley. Another match that was terrible and that made no sense. Um, I mean, I they just didn't know what to do with Abdul the Butcher. And, and frankly, 
I mean, we're they're cleaning up wrestling a little bit, so I'm not sure what you could do with Abdullah the Butcher. Um, but, you know, Bob Bradley had been a jobber in the WWF I, since like 82, 83. Uh, so I just, you know, I could see this match being the opener, but I have no idea what it's doing late on the card. Then I could see this match being good. The end, the Road Warriors and Paul Allering defeat Kevin Williams, Kevin Sullivan, Steve Williams, and Mike Rotunda. Uh, a very confusing ma- The match wasn't that good. I actually remember that. I remember being really disappointed in this match. Um, the the Road Warriors had turned heel in the beginning of December, if not late November. So now you've already got them doing heel versus heel stuff, which makes no sense. Um, I mean, it, it may. It, I think it made no sense to turn them, other than the fact that they had gotten stale, um, and it was almost like they abandoned the turn as soon as they did it, or they abandoned it as soon as Dusty left the promotion. I mean, here we are. Just like maybe five, six weeks after they turned and they're they're fighting Sullivan's guys. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Steve Williams had just turned as well. Yeah, it's weird. Uh, it, I mean, none of it makes any sense. I guess, you know, maybe you've got too many heels and you're like, all right, let's put out this match that people will hopefully get into. Yeah. People got into the Midnight Express against Darn Anderson and Tully Blanchard, so maybe we can try this, but it wasn't any good. They would get tenor in for that class of champions. They got tenor in for that class of champions, and the way they used him and the way yeah, the way they did the whole thing, uh, all Japan got so mad that they threatened to end their relationship with the NWA. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they... They used Tenru so wrong. <laughs> yeah, like, he's I mean, the best wrestler in the world. <laughs> right, and if you don't if you don't push the best wrestler in the world correctly, even if he is a big guy who is phenomenal, he's not getting over, and thus Tenru didn't get over in the United States. Tenru never got over in the United States. Look what yeah. WWF did to him. Yeah, I mean, you know, th- there's. There's a, a, it's hard. It's always been hard to push a guy who can't talk. I'm not, he, he can't speak English, thus he can't talk. Um, but there's, there's, there are ways to do it. You have to give him an effective manager. You have to get him in, you know, the big angles, and they just never figured it out with him. Yeah, because if he was put in a position to work, if he, if he, if he was put in there with Brett, oh. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of guys they could have put him in there with, and they just didn't do it. I mean, you, they, you know, WWF pushed Yokozuna hard and got him over, um, and, he, and he he got over big time. But, I mean, what if they had put over, like, a real Japanese superstar like Saruta, like Tenru, who could just tear it up inside the ring? Who knows? Yeah. Ding and Eddie Gilbert to be... NWA champion Ric Flair and NWA US champion Barry Windham. This was a really good match. It was, I would say it was a four-star match. Um, I should have guessed that this was the wicked good match. 
Uh, yeah, totally. I mean, Flair was totally on his game. Uh, Sting, you know, he, Sting still at this point wasn't the greatest worker. He was a good worker. Um, but Wyndham and Gilbert were really on top of their game on this night. Uh, I, I'll tell you something. I was a big fan of Eddie Gilbert. I always liked Eddie. But when you put him out there in a tag team, and it's Sting and Eddie Gilbert against Flair and Wyndham. It's like, okay, one of these guys is not like the other in terms of star power. And I'm sorry, that was Eddie. Yeah, he always wanted to be Jerry Lawler. Yeah, and I think Eddie was the, – the best time in Eddie Gilbert's career was 1986 when he was with Bill Watts, and he was you know kind of the little guy who, who was in the stable with the big guys, and he'd hide behind Sting, and he'd hide behind Steiner, and he was just like you know the uh, – you know, the scared little heel who thought he was a big shot, and he worked really well in that role, and I'm sorry that he never got that opportunity in the NWA. They were going to do it uh, at the Great American Bash in 89. They had everything set for him to turn, and they pulled the plug on it in the la- on, in the last minute because – quote, everyone knows Eddie's turning, so we'll swerve them and we won't turn him. Well, guess what? Eddie, you know, had no role in the NWA after that. Right. Right, because Eddie, Eddie, who's such a great mind, booking mind, sort of out himself. Yeah, and he was on the booking committee. He was either already on or he was about to be on and I wish he, I wish they'd let him do more because he was a really talented guy. Yeah. This match was on every match of the tour, almost on every match of the tour, and it seems like a great match to have. What was that class show? I'm sorry. What was that class show? The the Clash of the Champions. Yeah. Uh, let me see. They had one coming up in February, where they had uh, where they had it was uh, Road Warriors and Tenru in the main event against um, Hayes, Sting, and Luger maybe. And they did the thing where Kevin Sullivan like locks the good guys in a cage and goes out and brawls with the road warriors. And it was absolutely terrible. That, that was actually one of the Fall worst. Brawl class- nine. What's that? Fall Brawl 89 classic champions. I uh, no, this one wasn't fall brawl. This was February. Uh, it was Feb. It was right before the shy town heat pay-per-view. It was, it was in February of 89. February 15th. Thank you. You got it. So, I will quickly go over this card, because this card looks interesting. Midnight Express defeat the Russian Assassins. Uh, yeah, the, the Midnight's, after being so hot in the summer or fall of, of 1988, I don't know why the promotion just poured water on them, but by this point, they weren't as hot anymore. And this is a reason. I mean, they're... They're having the blow-off match against the original Midnight Express five days from now where Dennis Condry would no-show. And, I mean, they're just trying to keep them warm at this point. But, you know, having them in the opener, I don't know. I think it's kind of a waste of the Midnights. Butch Reed defeats Steve Casey in 1736. Yeah. 
Uh, <laughs> I think they were just trying, they were now kind of trying to figure out, like, how to use Clash of the Champions. I mean, this is this is their fifth attempt. In a year, we've been complaining that the matches were you too short. You more time. And it was it was a painfully bad match. It wasn't an exciting 17 minutes at all. It was it was a bad match. And as I was watching it, I'm like, this is too long. What are they doing? Lex Luger defeats the Blackmailer, who is Jack Victory with Hiro Matsuda. Yeah, uh, I don't remember the storyline going into this. I had a lot of respect for Hiro Matsuda. Obviously, he's the person who trained Lex Luger. He trained a lot of guys, but he was one of the worst managers of all time. He was the invisible manager. Trained Hulk Hogan, brother. Who's that? Trained Hulk Hogan, brother. Yeah, really? Oh, that's right. He tra- trained a lot of guys. But he's noted for training Luger because in Florida we got footage of him training Lex Luger and being his manager. So that that immediately comes to mind with me. The Varsity Club defeats the Fantastics. I remember this being a good match. Uh, was This was Williams and, Williams and Rotunda, right? Yeah, Williams and Rotunda defeat Fulton and Rogers. We were okay. just talking about the Fantastics earlier and how great they are. I think the Fantastics were on their way out here. Uh, they weren't going to be around much longer, which was a shame because this was a promotion that could use, at the time, that could use as much talent as was available to them, and the Fantastics were talented. Ricky Steamboat to beat Bob Bradley. That was probably a nothing match. Another Bob Bradley match. Um, I think, you know, I understand you don't want to, they didn't want to give away too much on free TV, um, but you could have come up with something better for Ricky Steamboat. You could have had him beat someone that makes you kind of say, wow, Ricky Steamboat beat whoever. Rick Steiner defeats Rip Morgan. Okay, you've got you know red, red hot Rick Steiner out there in basically what's just above a TV match. Um, I I don't have this in front of me. I know Sandy or was it George Scott? One of the Scott brothers was booking right around this time, and they were very stout on not giving away too much on TV. And, and so far, they haven't given away anything on TV. And. But they gave away Tenro on TV, only five minutes and 53 seconds of him. Okay. Um, and the Road Warriors defeat, wrestle the Varsity Club to a double disqualification. <laughs> yeah. What a bad show. It, it really was. And, and, you know, when JCP sold the NWA to Ted Turner, I mean, we, you know, we get part of it is like, oh, this, you know, these aren't wrestling people. They're not going to know what they're doing, etc. But I personally was excited because I knew that, you know, JCP with Dusty Rhodes booking, it had already been established that, look, you guys, you can't take on Vince. You're, you know, Dusty had all bookers have a shelf life. I really believe that. And Dusty, after being the booker for on and off, I mean, between Florida and JCP, he'd been the booker for like 13 years. He'd been the booker at JCP for like five years. 
And it, by year four, he was out of ideas. It was time for someone else. And now we have that someone else. Unfortunately, I, I think it's Sandy Scott. It's either George or Scott. Sandy Scott, I don't remember. And he, whoever it was, they're concept of wrestling was outdated these guys were trying to book uh, 1989 like it was 1977 and that wasn't going to happen but at least Chi-Town Rumble was a very good pay-per-view it was a very good pay-per-view in terms of match quality I I thought it was a great pay-per-view to be honest with you and I mean but you know it was it wasn't a one-match show. Uh, Luger winning yeah. was a really good match, but Flair Steamboat, it's either, in my opinion, the greatest match of all time or the second greatest match of all time. What would be your number one if that Flair Steamboat's not? I'm sorry? What would be your number one if Flair Steamboat wasn't? <laughs> it would be the Flair Steamboat rematch from uh, from. Uh-huh. It's so I mean, this match was so great because Ricky Steamboat, you know, it looked like he won the NWA title, but then they had the thing where the referee got knocked out and a substitute referee came in and we're all like, Oh god, they're doing this again and then both referees raised Steamboat's hand and it was it was a great moment in wrestling in my opinion. And a great moment in Ricky Steamboat's career because, you know, who's more worthy than to take Ric Flair's place even for like three, four months? and Ricky Steamboat. Yeah, and then the Flair Punk stuff in late 89. Yeah, 89, you know, the beginning of 89 was not that great. I get that. But then Steamboat got rolling, and I mean, you could argue that starting Chi-Town Rumbles, February 20th, I think it was, 1989, through, like, the Clash of the Champions when Sting got hurt, I mean, that was a great year of wrestling. Yeah, and and even in all Japan, it was great. That was the start of the rise of Kawada. Yeah, uh, WWF I thought was terrible. Not that it stopped. WWF was, was terrible. Oh, oh, god, yes. That I was mean, like five, right? In in 1989, I thought they bottomed out. Though I thought you know they just got sillier and sillier. In 1989, was just their their dumbest year like you know bringing in zeus as the lead heel next to randy savage i i i'm not saying i didn't watch it i'm not saying i didn't go to the arenas but it would make me shake my head yep 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 and we're at an hour so john plugs oh let me see a couple of plugs if you enjoyed me on this podcast uh Put in Stick to Wrestling in your Google, and my Stick to Wrestling podcast with my partner Sean Goodwin is on that. We have already recorded 97 episodes, if you can believe that. Uh, it, It still seems fresh and new to me, but yeah, 97 episodes are in the can. We have episode 96. We talked with John Muse who is an old friend of mine going back to the early 90s. We're talking like 1990, so 30 years ago. And we talked about him almost becoming the booker of the cruiserweights in WCW. Um, So, yeah, you might want to check that out. And if you'd like to follow me on Twitter, I don't stick to wrestling, but it's mostly wrestling. Uh, Just put the name John McAdam in the search engine and follow the guy who has two guys fighting with chairs in his avatar. Yes. Yes. And you can follow me on Twitter at DJD Kooks. 
I stick to wrestling, but I also do some sports and music as well. Um, no more coronavirus for me. <laughs> so, so no more, that, no more coronavirus coverage for me. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I, you're not going to get too much of that from me either. I mean, today. Someone sent a, a tweet that, you know, oh, it's no big deal. And I'm like, look, you know, 40,000 deaths in the last month is kind of a big deal. You know, I'm not trying to root for it or anything like that, but let's not pretend this thing doesn't exist. Right, right. But but we talked about wrestling, so that's the best thing we can do. It is the best thing we can do. I mean, this is a, a tough time for everyone, and, you know, hopefully – both Danny and I put a smile on your face at least once over the last hour. Yes. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.